0: Welcome to VCR, Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. I'm Jason. If there's one thing this last week has taught me, Jason, it's better to have a gun and not to need it than to need a gun and not have it.
1: Exactly. And I'm so curious if this is the first movie that's used that line, but I think it's probably a reference because this movie is full of references.
0: Yes, we're doing the 1993, co-written by Quentin Tarantino film, True Romance, romantic crime comedy everything film adventure action you name it it's got it
1: and ensemble cast
0: yes ensemble cast we talked about all of this in the primer episode who it's for where to check it out all of that sort of stuff so if you've never seen this movie highly recommend going back to that episode and we'll kind of explain give you an elevator pitch as to why to check this movie out and spoilers you should probably check this movie out But this is our deep dive episode where we go full spoilers. We're just going to dive right into it, starting with in front of the camera and working our way back. And true romance. I kind of want to start a little bit with Quentin Tarantino. The reason why I want to start with Tarantino is because like his DNA is just so infused throughout this movie, right? Like Mm -hmm. even though he's not the one directing it and that in and of itself is kind of neat, like getting to experience something that, you know, a lot of people don't directly connect to him, right? Yeah, yeah. But like, this is, to me, really shows Tarantino's strengths as, as a writer. Like I said in the primer episode, I don't think anybody writes better dialogue than Tarantino.
1: No, like it's not too wordy. It's straight to the point, And there's all these like stories and backstories that all just combine into the characters. And then the characters have this dialogue that just completely makes sense for their roles
0: nobody else has movies where the bulk of the scenes are just two characters having a conversation with each other. Yeah. You know, yeah. like there, he doesn't need big action sequences, even though he, he has them in his films. Like there's always some sort of big thing that happens in his movies, but he doesn't need them to draw you in.
1: These are the things that get you invested in his movies. It's those parts where it's two characters. and. Yeah. They're, like, often going head-to-head.
0: The other thing, too, is, like, by extension, his characters, like you kind of were saying, are really well-developed and fleshed out because of their dialogue. You know, 99% of these characters are completely insane people that we would never meet in, in most of our lives, right? Like, I'm sure that there are people out there who on some level exist like this. Yeah. But... You know, most of us have never got to experience that, but they all feel super authentic yeah. it's super lived in.
1: I want to say that it's like he has taken um, people's vision of what they wish they could be and put it on screen.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And we kind of talked about this in the primary episode as well, but the film, in a sense, is somewhat autobiographical about Tarantino. Not in, like, what he you know, directly apples to apples no. what his life was like. But, like, it's it's hard not to draw the line between him and Clarence, right? Yeah, like,
1: Clarence is like a stand-in. Like, if Tarantino directed this, he would probably want to play...
0: Especially at this point in his life, too. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. being this young. I would actually even say, though, so Clarence is the obvious connection here, but to me, watching this film for the second time this week, I actually kind of picked up on some of the dick richie connection too like i i could see a little bit of tarantino in dick's character being that young mm. hollywood hopeful right yeah yeah and that's also i think in part because and and tarantino's speaked at great length for this like if you find a dvd copy of this and check out the Commentary Tarantino talks for most of the commentary, and if you've ever listened to Tarantino talk, the guy doesn't shut up, so (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna learn a lot about this movie by watching the director's commentary or the I guess the screenwriter's commentary in this case. But even like Brad Pitt's character in the scenes where he's in, like that is in reference to the people that Tarantino lived with when he was living in Hollywood in his early days trying to make it.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that somebody actually smoked weed out of a uh, the honey bear <laughs> like um, Brad Pitt did in front of Tarantino. That's just hilarious. I love that. Just little detail.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this movie is full of little details. Like, I could see us, if we wanted to do it, talking about this entire movie for the entire night because of how many little details there are. Like oh, it's, yeah. it's such a realized world. Yeah. Clarence is like, and, and part of the reason why Clarence I find is so connected to Tarantino is also like the obvious stuff. Like, you know, his unapologetic, like just being himself, like the, the fact that he worked in a comic book store, like, you know, the conclude or the connection to working in the movie store,
1: even like the, um, the like internal dialogue, where uh
0: where he's talking to the king?
1: Yeah, Clarence is talking to his mentor which is Elvis. And yeah. I feel like like that must be what it's like when uh Tarantino's just like hanging out by himself or like in between doing something. He's like he probably has like this rich inner world that yes. gives him like it's just he has so much creativity, it's like bubbling over. So when he's alone, like he has like, someone there with him that he's talking to or something like that, not in a bad way, just in a pure creative way.
0: Well, and in, even in that self-confidence in himself that, like, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. You're so cool, as the movie puts yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, which is a great line. It is. I also want to, like, say as well that, and I, I brought this up in the primer episode, that, you know, Tarantino writes really compelling female characters. Like, like Alabama is an equal in this film. She's got the opener voiceover talking and it's like a, you know, talking about their lives and how important this moment is in their lives and everything and, and how the next, like, week of of what we're about to see is, like, incredibly important to this character. Mm-hmm. And she gets the final voiceover where they're reflecting on everything. It's her and him on the beach together with their kid in Mexico.
1: I thought he was gonna die so bad. Like, I thought well, he, Of course, we thought he was dead.
0: We'll talk about that when we get... To the yeah point, yeah because i i have yeah there's there's lots the spoilers. of spoilers facts there yeah <laughs> true <laughs>
1: um but her character is like cutesy and um conniving kind of like you you know she's like if you didn't know her well if you didn't see everything that we see you would think she's just like this pretty ditzy like uh cute girl but she has some
0: balls well and actually even on that note like I think she's self-aware enough to recognize what people see her as and yeah. use that right to her. Yeah, advantage. Exactly.
1: Exactly. But then she's so real with, uh, with Clarins.
0: Yeah. Like, well. you know, you, there's some instant gratification in the opening act of the film, the first like 20 minutes or so seeing these two, like these two completely unique people that are just both like, so sure of who they are as individuals, mm. And and the fact that they are able to come together and connect on such a deep level, like you really do believe in their relationship right off the bat. Like they're given the task of selling these two characters and like selling us on going on this adventure with these two characters right off the bat.
1: Yeah, and I think they both characters came into their interaction uh, thinking that this was just like a regular occurrence kind of thing because you see Clarence use the same line on her as he did on the initial girl from the opening scene. Right. And like she is putting on a character that she has put on for the past 4 days with other uh clients as a call girl. And but then they're both like shocked by the realness that they see in each other. And it's like they it's like they held up a mirror.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's it's two people that like all of their quirks and all of their like warts are just like on display for each other and they're both like oh we got matching warts yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and it's like it's exciting in that sense right like i think that a lot of romance films portray romance in a in a very different type of way and Mm -hmm. in a way that's like it's a romanticized type of romance whereas this feels like the blossoming of a real like romantic relationship like this feels like somehow we were afforded the opportunity to like just glance into the budding of like a, a real love story kind of thing, right Yeah <clears throat> I didn't even
1: think about that because this is uh like the, our Valentine's Day movie this yeah. is a true romance because <laughs> if you think about it like Tarantino was probably like I'm gonna do the opposite of a regular romance where the two characters meet and then there's like this happens and they're not sure mm-hmm. and then they do mm-hmm. this. And then it's too late and then they come back and they're like, oh, we're perfect for each other. No, these yeah. two fresh out of the gate, it's pure romance. Like it's yeah. exactly what they needed the world to provide them.
0: And that's that's such a good thought process too, because it's like I have I've kind of two thoughts to that. Is like first, you know, you said in the primer episode, we don't get the tropes that Hollywood often gives us, or we get them in ways that are like you heavily like manipulated and and flipped on their heads and mm-hmm. in that case like you know the the typical rom-com is like two people maybe are not interested in each other somehow find romance with each other in quirky ways something happens some sort of miscommunication it yeah. usually is happens and then there's like a breakup sequence and then they eventually get back together no pure into each other right off the bat like there's like the small like oh we might have a problem here and like, when, when she's like, well, actually, I'm a call girl, mm-hmm. but, like, I've completely fallen for you. He's just like, I don't care. Like, you're obviously the person for me in this world. Yeah, let's go get married tomorrow. Yeah, and then, like, you know, we get the steamy, erotic romance right out of the way. Like, right mm-hmm. out of the gates, like, them together back at his place, right? Yeah,
1: as soon as the first act ended, I was like, wow, like, they got the, like, I wrote it down. I was like, wow, they really got the romance, like, settled and done right out of the gate. I'm what's coming next
0: right yeah and so like that just frames the entire movie completely different from 99% of any other romantic films that you'll watch
1: Mm -hmm. and in that scene where uh, she's like coming clean and then they say I love you for the first time the Mm -hmm. I I just saw this like little detail the billboard in the background says don't wait for the dust to settle
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. Which is is really funny because, you know, the following scenes are like them getting married the next morning and getting matching tattoos together, right? Yeah, yeah. Part of it as well is just seeing these two people that don't have necessarily a whole lot going on in their lives for them other than the fact that they're very confident in themselves Mm -hmm. and just finding that connection. You're just rooting for them right off the bat, right? Mm -hmm. And how honest they are as people, right? Like, you know, when she's admitting who she really is and everything, like... That's one of the most honest scenes and open scenes in cinema, I think. Like it, they're just so putting it all out there in in, in a movie.
1: Yeah. This could have been a two-hour movie about her hiding her real thing and then him finding out and then being upset and then like all all that bullshit. How we've seen wasn't. all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And it yeah, and it flips it on its head. You know, the the next part of the movie is I think one of the more interesting parts of the movie to discuss where after he finds out she's a call girl, he starts asking into like her past life. And, you know, was there this pimp running like they talk about the pimp Drexel Mm -hmm. running her business? You know, he kind of obsesses over that idea and then has that discussion with Elvis in the washroom about what it means to be in this relationship and, and whether or not like. Drexel can exist in this world where these two live uh, and and are together kind of thing. This is going to maybe be somewhat controversial because I think for me, I still somewhat struggle with this. Um, I struggle with Clarence's response to go and kill Drexel because up until this point, like I personally felt really connected to Clarence kind of thing, right? Hmm. And because of the speed at which this movie moves with, Like, he's just instantly, like, out for blood, ready to go kill somebody. Yeah. And I mentioned it as soon as it came up again, because this is our second time watching this together, and Jess and I actually got in kind of a debate while we were watching this, because she was like, you know, obviously, like, Clarence doesn't have great impulse control Mm -hmm. (laughs) based on, like, how fast their relationship moves. And, like, the idea that another man owns his wife grinds down his sanity kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I see where she's coming from, but I guess for me, like, it's just, it's, I personally have a hard time, you know, accepting it as as a moviegoer because I feel so instantly connected to these characters right off the bat that it's just, like, it's such an extreme measure that it's hard for me to, like, stay in at that point in time.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where, like, the Elvis thing really... If there wasn't him talking to a uh, himself in the mirror, but it's Elvis, like, then it would have been, like, way too out of left field. But, like, mm-hmm. that, it's, like, this... Like Elvis was always with him and he was always talking to him. It was kind of clear just yep. like how familial they were. And right. yeah, he was like, Well, can you live with it? And uh he's like, Live with what? That son of a bitch walking around breathing the same air as you, getting away with it every day? Are you haunted? Uh, yeah, yeah, like trying to do my
0: Elvis voice.
1: <laughs> yeah, man, like that that was it was it's good dialogue again.
0: Well, and even, like, the idea of it, like, I've, I've thought about it so much because it's something that kind of irked me on the first watch. I thought about it again on this watch. But there's almost something Shakespearean in it mm, all anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And that this, like, lover's quarrel kind of sense that, like, I'm coming around on it. Yeah. We've now got my only critique of this entire movie out of the way. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's just smooth sailing from here on out. Because we get to Drexel, played by Gary Oldman. Oh. And... This is the performance of a lifetime.
1: <laughs> One of, yeah, like it's hard to say that it's the, but like it's it's fucking good. Alabama tells us that he is a white guy who thinks he's black, and he says that he has like some family that like could back it up or something like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't exactly what I was imagining because he's like full in character. He so believes it.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. Drexel is like literally got like the big dreads think like johnny depp in pirates of the caribbean almost in look i actually was thinking about it and i was like did johnny depp just like watch this movie and be like that's who i want to look like (laughs) an image for for the the pirates movie because he's got the dreads like he's got the big scar on his eye um, that little bit of stubble yeah the weird hat like it almost looks like a pirate hat yeah, it's kind of like a bandana kind of thing draped over his head. Very like distinct appearance. Like it's a, it's something that when you see Gary Oldman in all of this like costume, it's something that I'm gonna t- remember the rest of my life probably. Yeah. Is this portrayal. <laughs> And part of what makes the portrayal so great is how unhinged he is. Like, it's it's kind of cool because of the way that it's written in that, like, Alabama kind of plays him off like, ah, like, you know, he's more bark than bite kind of thing, right? Like,
1: she hints that he's a real badass and that she, yeah. but she doesn't know what Clarence is capable of and, like, yeah.
0: Like, we see Drexel with the drug deal, like, instantly, right? And then you're like, oh, man, like... This is not the guy you want to mess with kind of thing, right? Yeah, he just kills
1: uh, Samuel L. Jackson within 30 seconds.
0: Yeah, like instantly, like just blows him away in a mm. really crazy scene. And then this is one of my other favorite scenes in the movie that I really wanted to talk about is, and again, it's just two people talking. But when Clarence goes to confront Drexel and they have their like mono a mono conversation right there. like With the lamp? That's, Yeah, it's, like, one of my favorite scenes in all of, like, cinema. It's, like, Drexel standing there and being, like, sit down, have a um, wonton or whatever, like, let's talk. And he just stands up there. And and then Drexel, like, stands there and breaks down exactly, like, who Clarence is as a person in this moment. And just, like, completely pulls him apart. I'm, like, oh, it's basically explaining All of westerns to the common person Like it's basically explaining The dynamic Of like somebody in that Cool position of being in power And like being confronted by this Hothead I I just oh it's so good It's so good
1: like he is so Confident and so comfortable And he's been there before he's seen This many times and he Knows what to say to intimidate He doesn't even have to say anything super Intimidating he just has to break down Why clarence should be intimidated and why like why like what he's showing like a lot of this movie is actually about like who's holding the which cards everyone's like holding their cards to their chest then uh drexel's like i'm gonna tell you what hand you have
0: yeah it's so cool it's so drexel's one of the few characters in this film who is always within his element
1: yeah and he's eating he's like comfortable he's and the way he swings that lamp is yeah. so badass. The whole time you're like, oh, Clarence is going to fall apart. But then uh, like, he brings up, like, there's some titties on the screen, you didn't even look once. And yeah. uh, he looks at it for the first time. And then when he starts going, he's like, I saw that movie seven years ago. It's blah, blah, blah. Then he just goes off and he's like, you pegged me wrong.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, oh, it's so good. It's like, like I said, it's one of my favorite scenes of all time. And it's, it's, it's growing more and more on me every time I see it. It's so good. So goddamn good. I want to rewatch it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. After that, you know, like he loses his driver's license there, which is a really good idea to kind of, show that i mean i don't know that they necessarily had to do that although it it kind of brings up that that comedy of like you know when they take his driver's license from him i think that it would have been probably just a little simpler to be like oh you looked up the police records like later on you know when his dad gets caught by the mafia being like oh we like you know we were kind of paying attention after our boy got like capped and somebody stole all of our drugs kind of thing and your name came up that you were kind of stupid around. Yeah. I think that would have been just a little bit simpler. But the driver's license is kind of is comical, right? It's yeah. like, you know, this guy who's who we don't know is capable of this, like this violence and and is capable of of reacting in this situation like he does, he still manages to screw up in a sense, so
1: I think this brings up a point that I wanted to make. There's like a uh, a seesaw of luck. ...that happens throughout this movie. I, I almost want to say it's like every other scene mm-hmm. is good luck and then bad luck. Leaving his, his license in the dead guy's hand was bad luck because he just got fucked up. And uh, he had to get out of there quick. Right. So, like, it's not like it was pure idiocy. It was just, like, in the heat of the moment, it would be so hard to remember to grab your license that was just bad luck. And then we see him have good luck in that he took the case, right? the wrong case, which is also bad luck, but it's good luck because it's full of like 500K of cocaine, which we haven't even mentioned in the primer or this up until now.
0: Yeah, well, and that and that's really like, this is almost the conclusion of Act One, I would say, yeah. is suddenly Clarence and Alabama have been given the opportunity to two people who have probably lived... Near the poverty line for their entire lives, right? Oh, yeah. And they've been given the opportunity to sell drugs that are worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they just want to sell it for like 200 grand. They want to, you know, make their money. They just, they're not even really getting all that risky with it. They're like, yeah. we know that we're, we need to get on the run. We need to get this money, going to their dad, who's an ex cop, and being like, you know, just check this out. Like, check out if, if we're in any kind of trouble, kind of thing, if anybody's picked up on the fact that. I'm the one who killed Drexel and if not like we're going to we're going to find a way to sell these drugs and we're going to go and live out the rest of our lives happily. Yeah. You know, in a way, I think that I really believe them. Like I I really truly believe that these two people, this is their opportunity and and these are two people like to contrast this with like a uh, Walter White in Breaking Bad. Like these are two people who are comfortable living with what they have and mm. they're they're given this opportunity to just get a little bit better off and and they're gonna take that and i think you know it's a one and done type of situation yeah, right
1: yeah and like they might actually get away with the whole one last job
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trope because it's, it's their it's first like one, yeah it's one first job kind of uh yeah, almost yeah. in this one I, yeah. I like that i like that comparison again it's throwing the trope on its head
1: yeah yeah like they don't want more they just yeah. want this and they can go live their dreams
0: yeah, their their yeah. dreams are
1: simple, and it's just them together.
0: Yeah, and you want that. You truly want these two characters to be happy. In yeah, that.
1: it's a true romance.
0: <laughs> I love you name-dropping that. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, they leave his dad. I Again, this is another, like, one of those, like, quotes that's really funny is when they're leaving, they're saying thank you for the help to his dad. And then she's like, oh, she's like, oh, say goodbye to my dad. And Alabama goes and kisses uh, his dad and just, like, full on makes out. And he's like, what are you guys doing? Because
1: he said, go give my dad a kiss. And then she, like, almost makes out with him. And then he's like, what
0: kind of smackaroo is that? He's like, God. It's it's so funny. And then he's like, God damn, she really does taste like peaches. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. (laughs) So good. And uh, just the relationship between those two was so nuanced and not typical. Yeah. And like there was real love between father and son. So like that little bit like we get like a few scenes with them.
0: You get like three sentences into their backstory, and in those three sentences, you completely understand the relationship, you know yeah it's and it's a complicated it's, one, but there's real yeah. deep love there, yeah, yeah, exactly, like you know that's what makes really the next scene somewhat devastating but also yeah. like
1: rectifying,
0: yeah. Like, and, and really like, you know, like, "Mm," like, you know, like he stuck it to him kind of thing where, where his dad like is confronted by the mob, the mafia, and he doesn't pass, give them any information. He's there
1: for his son. What, like when he wasn't ever before. And, Mm -hmm. um, he's like, if I wasn't there before, I'm going to be there now.
0: Yeah. And then the Sicilian scene, which is like, again, oh. like you said in the primer, it's Quentin Tarantino's, one of his favorite scenes that he's ever written, just loves it portrayed on screen. I did see that he had a minor complaint that the throwing back the line, well, you're a cantaloupe, uh, wasn't super impressed by Walken using that, but mm, it yeah. works in the scene. It works in the scene. Yeah, I just I just
1: like how he said
0: it. <laughs> yeah. Even in that scene, like, you know, like there are people like who are gonna be uncomfortable with some of the language in that scene. But like it's such a great scene because, you know, the mafia is is always shown as these like tough guys. And like, you know, the, there's a romanticism to the mafia in film ever since The Godfather, really, right? Mm-hmm. And to just like throw it back at them to throw back this like well you know like you're no better than anyone else like yeah. y- you guys claim to be like the purest of the pure but like we're all just like you know a bunch of mutts like we all we're like we're all just people right yeah. Like, you know like we're all just mixed with everybody else like you're no you're no better than anyone yeah. else kind of thing
1: and it just counterbalanced um Christopher Walken's characters like he, he came in and he's like you know who I am Mr. Wally, yeah. and uh, yeah. he's like, I give work up for Nardi. Blue Lou. Yeah, um, he's like, I am the Antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> you got me in a vendetta kind of mood.
0: <laughs> you got me in a vendetta kind of mood.
1: Oh man, Blake, you need to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> so he comes in and he's all like, uh, like my dad was the best liar of all Sicilians, and I'm Sicilian. We never lie, and so we can tell. 17 um cues when someone else is lying
0: yeah and he's like ah women have like more than that but like you know we don't need to get into that right now yeah (laughs) yeah and then
1: he like picks apart why he thinks he's lying and then uh like the dad just goes right into his story to say like it's all bullshit man
0: yeah (laughs) yeah like you're just like all the rest of us and it's
1: just such a big fuck you
0: it's oh yeah it like It is the, one of the most insulting scenes towards like these purest people that you could ever imagine kind of thing, right? Yeah. And, you know, some, again, some people are going to get upset by the language, but like, it's not about what they're calling them. It's about just like, just shoving back this, like, we're better than everyone else in their face. Yes. Yeah. It's
1: like the intention is to say like, like, you're not better than anybody. I don't necessarily think that Clifford is racist. Yeah. He just uses it because he knows that that's what's going to say fuck you the biggest.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely agree. And then, like I said in the primer episode, the score in this scene using that Italian opera song, um, I had it up just a second ago, but it's like, you know, it's it's that classic song. You've probably heard it in some, like, women's makeup ad on TV before. Like, it's, it's a song you've heard before, it's a song from the Lacme Act 2 by Leo Delibes. It's like a French opera song. Hmm. And, you know, if you've never seen this scene in a movie before and you're just listening to us talk, A, I question why you're not listening to the primer episode right now. But <laughs> B, like, you know, you're probably going to check out this scene. It's the most famous scene in the entire movie. You'll understand as soon as you hear like why it works for me so well in the yeah. scene. Yeah,
1: it works for everybody. Like that—that that is just like everyone loves that scene who is involved. I also—I uh, was so curious if all we were gonna see from
0: James Gandolfini.
1: Yeah, I thought all we were gonna see was him looking like weird in the background. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All those facial expressions like oh he's going to get it. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Shoulda said that. Yeah. Like yeah. it's great because he kind of mirrors like all the rest of us what we're spectating watching, right? Yeah, like Yeah. Yeah, bring up James Gandolfini right now is great because I want to talk about him later, but let's just let's just get him out of the way now like after watching this and get starting to just get into the Sopranos now. I really truly see what the casting director of the Sopranos saw on him for Mm -hmm. Tony Soprano. Like, like he could have just been like some no-name enforcer, right? Yeah, yeah. In this film. And the depth that he brings to the hotel scene where he beats up Alabama is like, there's so much depth to his character. Like, you can feel the years on this character and what being an enforcer has made him.
1: Yeah. He had so many good lines while he was kicking her ass. And like, it's that's such a good scene
0: like the first kill is the hardest and he's kind of like breaking it down or yeah oh my and then god it's
1: he goes through like the first kill is the hardest second one not so bad it's you still get the thrill of the first one and then like he's like now sometimes i just do it to see the change in their expression
0: right yeah like- and uh,
1: he's just so like psychopathic by then
0: right yeah and again like just watching the sopranos and if you're a fan of the sopranos and like seeing this performance you're like oh my god like i i see it i see it so yeah. much here like the 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 power that this actor has over this performance right now mm-hmm.
1: like james Gand- gandolfini was meant to be a don
0: in oh, film i'm i it's like the perfect role and yeah. like and this film just like it's just the perfect gateway for that yeah yeah it was so cool to see that getting back to like some of the plot stuff like i kind of want to mention the fact that like the whole setup to the drug deal and all of the introductions to all of these crazy characters i i really love this entire part of the movie there's no like there's no weak part of the movie for me no. like any even like scenes where it's just like we're going to set up this drug deal which could be boring and could be kind of filler it's just like every one of these characters i'm just like holding on to everything that they have to say everything is so funny and yeah. like so catchy like you know when when he sets this up with Dick and like you know we get to see Dick like be failing as an actor basically like yeah. even that scene like you didn't need that scene you didn't need to see that Dick kind of sucks as an actor but yeah. we got it and it was great yeah.
1: <laughs> it was nice and quick and it got it out of the way and it set up his story and like who he is and then you get like the second half of him which is just the best friend and he's just like a fun goofy character and like him freaking out about the fact that there's like however many kilos of coke in his house right now or at at the hotel and he's like you expected me to know somebody i'm a nobody
0: (laughs) you could do do literally move like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cocaine he's like yo like i'm a i'm literally nobody right now like you said like (laughs) yeah yeah the introduction to Elliot is yeah. amazing. Like, Elliot's just, like, this bumbling idiot.
1: He started off very cool.
0: Yes, yes. Like, he's
1: well-dressed.
0: Yeah, he looks like somebody who's in the business, and that facade is, like, quickly evaporating. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like, they just shatter it just by taking him on the, uh, the roller coaster, <laughs> which, like, I don't know if I've ever seen like a roller coaster feature in one of these old films that has like such an important part
0: (laughs) that's a tony scott addition to uh the film actually that that was a tony scott addition putting them on the roller coaster due to the drug scene which is great by the way like i like you said like it's just it's so unique it's hilarious because it's like who would do that like who would do like a drug deal on a roller coaster it's Mm. so ludicrous that like it's perfect it unwinds elliot very quickly right and from then on he's just an idiot
1: yeah and that's a good me too like the, him crying, like freaking yeah. out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, another like Tony Scott edition was the Cadillac, the like pink purple Cadillac. Oh, sick! He, yeah, he, he literally just saw that driving around L.A. or like Hollywood or wherever, and he tracked down the owner and
0: bought it. That's awesome. He actually gave that to Patricia Arquette after the movie. Yeah, yeah,
1: I saw that too.
0: <laughs> it's really cool, but
1: you can still rent it. No way! Yeah, you can rent the original right now.
0: Holy shit! Next time you and I are taking a vacation to Hollywood, yes. we're going to watch a movie at the Beverly, the new Beverly. That's like 35 Tarantino's, mil. Yeah, that's Tarantino's like movie theater. We'll go check him out old movie there, and then rent out that car. Pull up to the old Bev in yeah. that car to watch a movie. Oh man, oh. that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like I love that scene. Like I love Elliot just coming undone there, and then like we get to see how. This is the part of, like, this scene and the writing of this scene that I love is that every single one of these characters is completely out of their element. Mm. Nobody has any idea how to react in this scenario. Like, Elliot's talking to the film producer, and the film producer's like, man, like, I don't deal with drug deals like this. Like, I just go and pick up, like... Like you know an eight ball or something For one of my actors kind of thing Right like it
1: seemed like he did more Like he would buy like a kilo every Other month or something like that and divvy It out but like right Yeah he was not dealing with like this Kind of weight
0: yeah so like he's out of His element Elliot's out of his element Like you know obviously Clarence Has never done anything like this but everybody's Like putting on this like you know Fake image of cool
1: But Clarence is the only one who fucking pulls it off because he's right. been, he's been like dreaming of this opportunity to do something big, do something like Elvis would or uh, like uh, someone in one of the, like the movies that he watches would like
0: he's, that's exactly he's it. He's a
1: dreamer and he's dreamed he's dreamt of this situation so many times that he knows how to play it cool. He's the one like pushing things in the direction he wants them to go. And he, he does it without bumbling so much. He's like this is how it's supposed to go according to the movies and my imagination. So let's make it go this
0: way. And that's really when I was thinking too like this is really a love letter to 70s heist films and 70s films in mm-hmm. general, right? 70s crime films and and the exploitation. It remind me of The Thief. Absolutely. And again, 70s exploitation films, like all of these influences on Tarantino are really apparent throughout this film. And the more you watch it, the more you start thinking about stuff like that, right? Yeah, this is, uh, just such a good movie. Mm. As this movie is going on, and this is why I was comparing this to Snatch and Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, yeah. is like, as we get on, there's all of these like developing parties that are added and like yeah. piled on top of each other so that we get to this really crazy Mexican standoff conclusion kind of thing, right? Yeah. We've got Clarence and Alabama. We've got the Friends. We've got the movie producer now and mm-hmm. like this drug deal going on. And then Elliot gets pulled over in, like, one of the funniest, like, pulled over scenes of all yes, time. This is, like, yes. one of the best scenes of, like, somebody being pulled over. Yeah, <laughs> He's I got, love like, that. that little bit of coke on him. And he's like, you need to hide this for me right now. <laughs> and, and he, like, he forgets Wire. her name. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then she's like, I'm not hiding that for you. Yeah, just smacks it, goes all over his face as the cops walking up. And uh, just go back to my little theory thing. Clarence was really lucky with being able to pull out that phone conversation at like after the roller coaster, and then mm. he gets unlucky because this guy is such an idiot that he drives all crazy and gets pulled over. He gets lucky then unlucky, lucky then unlucky. But everybody's fucking like, oh man, this guy's so cool. <laughs>
0: yeah, and then like at that point, that's when the cops get involved, right? And yeah. that's where you know we get the performances from Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn. I didn't even recognize Tom Sizemore in this role, which is funny, but... He looked familiar,
1: and I still don't know yeah. him that well.
0: We've we've talked about him before, because we did... We did Heat. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh! The action is the juice, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that was him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, like I said, Chris Penn, who... I was like, I recognize this guy, but I don't know why I recognize him. He kind of has like a a serious Jonah Hill vibe to him. Mm, Yeah. And he's, he's Sean Penn's brother actually, which is kind of wild and their appearance. And then like, we get this whole like brief momentary, like while everything else is going on, we get the brief scene at the like police station and, and it's just like a typical police like scene, but kind of like, you know, poking fun at like police procedurals too. Right. Yeah. These two guys who are just like, Oh, like we're gonna bring this all down. It's like, and they're so serious about it and everything, but it's like really funny. Like it's really good, snappy dialogue. Still,
1: yeah. Like the captain is like, like shut the fuck up, sit down.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> calm down. Tell me what's going on. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. And their addition into all of this is like the second time around is when I really noticed it on on this watch is how great of an addition they are because again, one of my other like small favorite movie scenes of this movie like a clip that I could probably go back to and watch on any given day is Clarence losing his shit on Elliot in the elevator oh my god
1: yes like (laughs) he had this huge hunch and then just goes off on him and and he was right but he didn't like he didn't know to follow through and the cops reaction to it
0: he's just messing with you he's just messing with you and then there's one brief second where the one guy's like oh my god he's gonna shoot him (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) i love that scene i think that's like one of the unsung like funniest scenes of the entire movie
1: yeah and i i didn't fully get this but clarence was like elliot do i look like a beautiful blonde with big tits and an ass that tastes like french vanilla ice cream right and elliot's like what and then he just repeats (laughs) it he's just like okay then why are you telling me all this bullshit huh you want to fuck me
0: it's just you know what even you saying that like makes me think about like Pulp Fiction, yeah. Where he's like, "Does Marcellus Wallace look like a bitch yeah, to you?" Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: And not uh, just to go way back, uh the when Drexel says "motherfucker," yeah. that reminded me of Samuel L. Jackson saying "motherfucker," mm. just like in the context and like it's it's scenario. like he
0: picked it up after that, and that scene was like, "Ooh, oh, I that I did work. work with that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's kind of some theories online about. Quentin maybe having met Samuel Jackson prior to this, I can't remember where he had met him and that Tarantino like would have maybe recommended him to Tony Scott to be in like the scene, even just for that brief moment kind of thing, right? Because like Pulp Fiction is the movie that puts Samuel Jackson on the map and makes him a household name. A lot of the
1: casting decisions were Tony Scott's not, like Quentin didn't have much to do with casting this, which is crazy.
0: Well, he kind of sold it and kind of, you know, let it go kind of thing yeah actually i was was talking to mike about this yesterday because we were talking about like you know tarantino and like what it would be like for a director to sell his work or even like a screenwriter to sell his work and then see it like portrayed by somebody else like through their lens Mm. because it's ultimately the director who brings everything together and it's through their lens that we're viewing this movie play out yeah. and so I like I was asking him like how interesting would that have been like what would it have been like to be on set as as Tarantino the screenwriter and it, it is documented that Tarantino didn't spend any time really on set of this hmm. and Mike's a writer he was like you know like if it were me and he's like and he's like I've written stuff because he was in film school I've written stuff that we've then gone and shot and he's like it feels uncomfortable being the screenwriter on set mm. because like, you don't really fit in, in a sense. And then like, again, it's not at that point in time, it's not really through your eyes anymore. It's through yeah. the director's eyes that this is being framed. So. And, and the
1: actors listening to people talk about uh, writing sketches on SNL and things like that. Uh, like they write something and like, while they're watching it, like sometimes they're like picking it apart, like, Oh no, they weren't supposed to say it like that. Like, that's not what I intended. But then sometimes it's like they just turn that into their own thing. That's where like someone like Gary Oldman just takes it, takes it over.
0: Right. So
1: I bet there's like a whole mix of emotions.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I don't even remember where I was at or why I was on this tangent now. But
1: uh, we were just at like everyone building up. So we have the cops. They're involved now. And the Sicilians are on their way. And that's where we haven't talked about yet. Oh, they are the only ones who interact with Brad Pitt's character. Yeah. Which is (laughs) hilarious because...
0: Oh, my God maybe best use of song in the entire movie is Chris Cornell singing Soundgarden in that scene. Yes, like, yeah. <laughs> so fun fun little story about the use of that is they were actually just using that song as kind of like a placeholder in that scene. Huh. And at, like while they were editing, they were like, god damn, that song works so yeah. well in that spot. So they ended up spending like all the rest of their budget acquiring that song to be used in oh, that no scene. Oh, no way. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's just perfect and lucky and yeah. Yeah, they flipped the coin, and they came up lucky on that one.
1: Yeah, so then we see the Sicilians getting ready. No, first we see them uh go back to uh Dick's house and see Floyd. Yeah, he's just high as shit, smoking out of that little uh the honey bear, like the craft yeah. honey bear or whatever it is. And um like he he's so funny. So Brad Pitt obviously has like comedy chops. And we see that in a lot of his movies and the ones where he's with Tarantino in his movies. But this one was just like, it was perfect.
0: <laughs> so what I what I love about his performance is that it literally feels like they were driving around Hollywood looking for the right little shitty apartment to yeah. film this in. And he was just like, like, you know, the they couch. knocked on the door and he was just like, hey man in that exact position that he was when like they they came in like we're yeah. checking him out and they're like hey do you mind if we come film here for a <laughs> bit and he's just like yeah it's cool <laughs> and then they are just like we'll give you some dialogue like just do your thing we're gonna have people show up the door mm. and just you know just pretend like you're here and yeah. your buddies are out and like shit. him
1: giving directions to <laughs> like just such a nice little
0: thing I, yeah, I like how he's just, like, annoyed that they're just, like, interrupting his high.
1: Yeah, and uh, especially when James Gandolfini goes, goes there the first time, and he, like, interrupts his high, and he's, like, be condescending to me. I'll fucking yeah. kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so, he's so good. Like, it's such a small part, and, like, you don't... That's the other thing that's beautiful about this is that, like, actors like Brad Pitt, it feels like they've just been in movies For so long and like for somebody like brad pitt to just get to see him in this like small bit part is really cool right yeah yeah like
1: now if he was in a scene like that that would be just that would blow everyone's mind but like exactly him it was like he had to start somewhere and like he had a few things before obviously but this was just such a tiny role and he was so
0: awesome yeah and then you know we we're getting to like kind of the epic conclusion to all of this right like the big shootout scene this reminds me of like a western right like at this point we've gone full western and in, snatch, in my mind yeah it's yeah oh West-
1: yeah. it's like a combination but i see the western what you mean
0: but like Lockstock and snatch come out after this movie so that's yeah. what i was saying about like guy ritchie there's no way guy ritchie didn't see this movie and, you know, think more about, like, how could I expand the last 30 minutes of this into, like, a really exciting stylized movie? Yeah, yeah. Guy Ritchie is, he's not in my top, like, five directors, but he's a director that I will always go and check out what he's putting out. Like, oh, 100%. Big fan of Guy Ritchie. And so to see, like, maybe some of his inspirations played out here. And, like, you know, again, even, like, this, again, is a, a reference back to the Westerns of past cinema, like in the seventies or like, you know, those great exploitation films and, and like their violence and everything. Like, Oh, this whole scene is, it's really iconic now. And it feels like, you know, we've, in a sense, it does feel like we've seen this scene now yeah. in a, in a lot of different places, but it's still special in getting to see it and experience here. Yeah. it here,
1: like just to start off like, with like that scene, like the helicopter on the projector as they came in and there's like these big bodyguards and they have the guns. Then they have that little interaction where he's like, you don't have to uh, pat me down. I've got a gun right here. Yeah. Just again, like the level of confidence that Clarence has and it grows over time, just the way like he played that all out. Wow. And then you have Elliot itching his balls, trying to like (laughs) hide his, uh, Recorder is Mike.
0: That might be like one of the tiniest, best details in a movie ever. <laughs> is just a guy scratching his balls because they're sweaty, <laughs> yeah. and he's got like a bunch of wires strapped to them. Yeah. Like I, I felt that moment. You yeah. know Like and then the I cops felt them freaking balls. out. Yeah. At that point,
1: like it, it builds so much tension.
0: Yeah. Like the cops don't know what's happening now, and then it's like, oh my god, like maybe they're about to get involved in all of this, and mm-hmm. we know that the mafia is like heading over to here. We see that, like, Lee Donowitz's bodyguards are his hired henchmen here. Yeah. They're not really messing around, eh? Like, they, no. they, they're they pretty serious guys. Like, Lee is, like, you know, kind of, like, schmoozy and, like, yeah. laid-back kind of guy and trying to be, like, the cool guy in this. But, like, these guys are, like, they're ready to shoot. Like, oh, uh, yeah. They have Uzi's. Even at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, like, I was
1: not expecting those bodyguards to be there, and, like, it changed everything. It changes the dynamic of everything.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then, like, you really believe, like... This is, like, one of my favorite line. another one of my favorite lines of the movies. You know, they, they're they holding up their guns, like, when the police walk in, there's a standoff. Mm-hmm. And Lee's like, yo, like, these are cops, like, we're not messing, like, we're done. Yeah. Like, we've lost here. And, like, the one bodyguard's just like, I fucking hate police. And yeah. He's just, like, holds up his gun, and you're like, yeah, these guys were not messing around this whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I love that line reading. Yeah, love it. That guy's Boris, but the- yeah. he's like,
1: I-, I haven't told you this to Lee. And then he's like, I fucking hate cops.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of my favorite like small line readings in the yeah. whole film. Yeah. <laughs> I like I, I was looking him up because I wasn't sure if he was like a WWE wrestler or anything like that, but he's just like a, a fight choreographer. Oh, he did Robin Hood men in tights. Boom. There's my Shit. Robin Hood men in tights uh, connection.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I loved how um, Clarence told him the same story that he told Elliot to get the meeting about the cop and like where the cocaine came from. Lee pulls him out separate. And then he's like, tell me the real story. Mm -hmm. He's like, why, like, why did this cop trust you? And he's like, I bullshitted him. That sealed the deal for Lee, even though it was like, he admitted a truth to him. Like he was just so psychologically smart on Clarence's part. Like he knew what, to do he admitted a, a little lie so that he could get away with a bigger lie yeah lee just fell for it and the whole time uh the cops hearing like a bunch of this were like like this guy's cool man clarence is fucking yeah. cool
0: <laughs> yeah they're like growing more attached to clarence as this goes on too Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love the dynamic of all of this how this all is playing out like on yeah. on screen right yeah and
1: uh clarence had already gone to the washroom to talk to Elvis, another mm-hmm. lucky part, coin flip on his part. Cops show up. There's a little that little standoff, and then Boris says his line, and then the uh, Sicilians show up, and yeah. then yeah, she just again like it's like a second um, standoff,
0: and then that's where Elliot's like, hey, I'm kind of done here. <laughs> like I can go right. <laughs> yeah, and
1: and then Lee is says his line that you love.
0: I treated you like a son, and you <laughs> stabbed me in the heart. Yeah. Fuck you, fuck you. And then, the, and everybody starts shooting at that point, and that's how it starts. Yeah, and it just goes off,
1: and everyone's just getting pumped full, and feathers flying. You don't know who's going to survive, and like who's going to win this out. And uh, Clarence is still in the washroom. He, like He has started to come out.
0: Alabama's in the middle of all this. Like she's sitting on the couch. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, uh, Dick is too. He, he runs away eventually when he gets it because he throws the bag of cocaine up in the air.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And that
1: gets shot because it like, there's like a big gunfight. Then it's quiet. Everyone's kind of hiding. He throws the cocaine in there. Someone shoots it. They start shooting again. A few more guys drop and then he runs and then Alabama starts crawling, uh, because she just saw Clarence come out. Clarence gets shot in the eye which I thought was kind of, like, connected to Drexel a little bit. It's, like, Karma or something like that. I don't know.
0: Oh, interesting, yeah.
1: It's the same eye that Drexel has Blinded and the Scarlet. All... Not that it's probably that connected, but anyways.
0: You know, one little tiny detail about all of this scene, again, that I, I really like is the attention the movie takes to, like, the consequences to everybody in the scene. And, mm. like, even, like the one police officer who dies on the couch like yeah i'm momentarily i'm kind of taken it back and like that sucks like yeah. like i really cared about this character who i don't even know his name like yeah. in this like his name the was minute that he's on his name is cody because
1: yeah. uh a minute after he dies um you hear boris screaming out
0: i need an ambulance yes and then uh chris penn's character yeah, um walks over and he's like nikki dimes yeah, and <laughs> great name. Yeah, yeah, that is.
1: Yeah, Boris is like, call me an ambulance. Somebody call me an ambulance. Nikki Dime's like, shut up. Boris is like, fuck you. I'm bleeding. Nikki Dime says, I'll call you a hearse. This is for Cody. And then she. Yeah, you. and
0: you're like, we just met Cody like a minute ago. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, like, yeah. vengeance. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then Alabama finds a revolver and shoots him
0: yeah so that's where like those two are able to get away at this point because literally everybody else in this shootout has died
1: and then they they just walk out
0: yeah it's a really exciting conclusion to all of this movie it's like a cool build-up that we get to there's some really brutal action sequences like you know where dennis hopper bites a few bullets and then Alabama gets beaten up in the hotel room yeah but this is like kind of the big epic conclusion scene and it's worth like the journey to this point right yeah exactly there's so many characters that kind of make an appearance in this scene and you just are instantly like attached to all of them and then they all die
1: yeah (laughs) yeah right before the shootout she writes uh Alabama writes you're so cool on a napkin and gives it to Clarence after the shootout's done and she starts her monologue she starts it with like there were three words that i just kept like that's all i can remember thinking after and during that whole shootout and it's just you're so cool you're so cool yeah that was just so fucking nice
0: <laughs> yeah 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 for sure uh, just a great movie all around like it uh, it's a really great end to the movie well i wanted to quickly like share because i did watch you can If you just look on YouTube, the true romance alternate ending, um, the scene is actually on YouTube. Oh, no way. It's not Tarantino's, like, originally written scene. In his original written scene, and this probably harkens back to what I was talking about, the Shakespeare stuff. In the original written screen, both Alabama and Clarence die in the shootout. Which
1: should happen for, like, a Bonnie and Clyde epic.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Shakespeare again, like two, you know, doomed lovers kind of yeah. thing. And then in the scene that was filmed, Clarence dies and Alabama drives away very bitter. And it's it like she kind of basically just is like so bitter towards him, like you thought you were so cool and like you were oh. nothing and you failed and like all of this stuff and now I'm all alone and like yeah, yeah. it's it's so bitter bitter like Mm. i can't imagine ending the movie with that because i think if that had ended like i never would have watched this movie again yeah yeah it would have upset me way too much
1: yeah i actually read uh, that like uh, in that alternate version she was like only in it for the money too like that was half of the bitterness Mm. or something like that so i'm glad they did it this way
0: yeah and for sure and like this is the movie like i said in the primer episode that tarantino wrote that didn't direct that he really liked and the biggest change that happened in the making of this movie was the original screenplay was more to the style of Tarantino where like the timeline is played with quite a bit like you know yes yeah. future scenes we get like that and so Tony Scott made it a much more linear type of film and then like I said he wanted both of them to die but then watching it Tarantino said you know like I actually really like the ending of this and Tony Scott was able to convince me that this was the right ending for this. And he's right because of the way he shot this, the love that these two characters have, like that element of luck that is throughout this film. Right. Mm. And these two people who have probably dealt with like uh, being on the unlucky side of things for their whole lives. And then, you know, we get these moments of luck throughout the film to places at the end of this movie. It's so bitter to just like have Mm. these two characters that we've been rooting for the whole movie, just die. Yes.
1: Yeah. Just to go back to, like, an earlier point, too, after um, Clarence kills Drexel and comes back to the apartment and eats his burger, and he's like, this is the best burger I've had in my whole life. Another, like, Pulp fiction moment with the uh, royale cheese almost. Yeah. (laughs) Like, the way she starts crying and he starts freaking out on her, that, I was like, I was like, no! (laughs) I'm glad, like, that kind of element was fine because she was like that was just so romantic and she's crying out of uh, like love and te- like happy tears or something like that
0: yeah 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 as a side note as well like the burger scene where he goes and gets the burger mm. the guy he talks to at the burger joint is like he looks like if josh hutcherson and robert patterson traveled back into like the 70s and had a male baby together and, <laughs> like and he grew up and then starred in this film in this 12 seconds yeah yeah i i can see kind of what you mean robert pattinson i think yeah pattinson yeah. and then yeah. josh hutcherson whatever <laughs> it's like those two together and i was like oh my god <laughs> you were into time them? machine yeah time travel has been invented and those two went back and made sweet sweet love huh. and had this went... child <laughs> anyways we're getting to weird we're getting shower the thought. timeline yeah <laughs> yeah weird shower thought that i had while watching this but oh
1: okay we didn't really go into that. just I just want to say how badass Alabama was with.
0: Yeah, staring down the gun against James Gandolfini's character. Yeah,
1: yeah, and like his like depravity and like he's like, oh, you want to stab me? Like go for it. And then she gets his foot and he's like yeah. so shocked. I love that because like, I don't know, I've, I've kind of like done something similar where there was this big guy that I was uh, boxing at a gym and he's like, hit me in the face and I hit him in the stomach instead. <laughs> it just threw him off completely and like showed how much heart she had. And he even mentioned that he loved that she was so cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's, again, goes back to like my admiration for Tarantino being able to write strong female characters. It's like, you know, she's somebody who can fend for herself. Like in the end, she saves herself. Like, it's not like he comes in and and, like, you know, saves the day. She, she already, one and like at this point in time, and
1: so brutally, like after like, it's a very brutal yeah, scene, and they, like
0: and that's yeah, they
1: fought all over, and then she empties the shotgun into him, and then that's not enough for her, so she just starts hitting him with it, and oh man, I love that.
0: It's hard to watch because like you know you don't want to see necessarily your female characters get like abused like that, but on the flip mm-hmm. side, like we're used to in film seeing our hero take these kind of beatings. It's just usually the reality of the brutality of it doesn't get portrayed on screen. Like our characters are able to walk away, Mm. but like, even though she succeeds, you do feel the brutality in that. And it's, that's what makes it so hard to watch. Right. Yeah. 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 It feels real.
1: It, It feels so real. It was so cool. And she was just so resourceful. Like she's been resourceful her whole life and it like culminated in that scene and like she pulled out everything she uh she put some like soap in her hand or something and smeared it in his eyes and then she lit him on fire with the hairspray and like man yeah just so cool
0: yeah to wrap up with like our in front of the screen i do want to ask you like who's your favorite film appearance in this movie like who was the favorite like oh my god I can't, I can't believe this guy's in here. And then like, Oh my God, this performance is incredible.
1: The obvious one is just Drexel and Gary Oldman. But I also just, anytime I see, especially in older movies, um, Christopher Walken, like that, that was so good. Like, and like, I loved his line. He's like, I haven't killed anyone since 1994. And he's like, he's pissed that this guy made him kill him.
0: Yeah, that he like brought him down to his level, right? Yeah. Because he's yeah. supposed to be above that. He's the conciliary. Like he's not the guy doing getting down and dirty and doing like the murders anymore. This is this is why you and I are so greatly aligned, especially on films like that. I literally wrote down it's Gary Oldman number one, Christopher Walken, like the closest shave of second. Like yeah. just because I love Christopher Walken appearing in movies. It's the same thing with like something like Pulp Fiction, right? Like Christopher Walken used in little but memorable parts in movies is like one of my favorite things. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: He should be in every move. <laughs> <Yeah>, I agree. <laughs> he just needs like one good scene that's, and he'll dominate it. And then you can move on with the rest of your movie. If I'm ever a dictator, I will be uh, enforcing that rule. Um, <laughs> And like the I way it. the way he's like laughing along with uh Clifford. Yeah. He's taken a at this guy's balls and he's um enjoying the story. He's like having fun with it a little bit, but he's like, I have to kill you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's pissed it's, about it. <laughs> it's like the it's like the Princess Bride scene where he's like, Oh, you seem like a like a good guy, like I hate to kill you and he's yeah. like, You seem like a good guy, I hate to die. It's kinda <laughs> like that, you know? Like there's that mutual respect that these two have for each other, yeah. even though like they hate each other at the same time right like
1: and there's like such a clear power imbalance but uh clifford evens the playing field and it's like uh if the roles were reversed that's exactly what christopher walken's character would do as well it was like it was refreshing for christopher walken's character to encounter someone worth killing
0: yeah yeah agreed and and that's always like exciting when that you see that portrayed in film right
1: yeah and again that that's also balanced by the um Gandolfini uh, and Alabama scene because he was like oh you're actually giving up a fight like I don't it's not a boring kill this time
0: yeah so is there any scenes that you want to talk or moments that you want to talk before we get into effects and filming I think I've said all the scenes (laughs) That's the thing about a movie like true romance is every scene is just so exciting and well shot and well written that like,
1: it's just so worth talking about.
0: Yeah. This is like, this is the kind of movie that like as a podcaster, I just go nuts over. Yeah.
1: And this is exactly why we started this podcast. Cause after watching a movie, we would be talking about this in this kind of depth anyways, at least over certain scenes.
0: Oh, absolutely. Okay. Effects and filming. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about Tarantino and his involvement at this point. I do want to just quickly say, like, how this screenplay came to be, because it's actually Roger Avery that started the concept of this. Mm. He was writing a script called *The Open Road*. The original plot was about an odd couple relationship between an uptight businessman and an out of control hitchhiker who traveled into hellish midwestern mid into a hellish midwestern town together. He he kind of got writer's block and was like Quentin can you like give this a once over? And so after a few weeks, Tarantino came back and gave him a 500 handwritten page screenplay that Avery called the Bible of pop culture. So yeah. So Roger then like typed that all up, edited it. And then they kind of made like some extra ideas and everything, developed it more. Eventually they were like, There's no way that we could sell this. Like this is insane. Like this is huge. Like this is a mini series worth of stuff. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so what they ended up doing was they ended up actually splitting this screenplay up with a film called Natural Born Killers.
1: No, okay.
0: So the original screenplay was Natural Born Killers script up until the prison riot, and then after they escape. Mickey and Mallory decide to go after the screenwriter who is basically writing their story for a film. Yes. And then in Quentin Tarantino fashion, there's like half of the movie is about the film that he is making kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so it's this film. So they were like, okay, well, this is too much. Let's split this into two movies. And then Natural Born Killers, obviously significantly rewrote by Roger Stone, not really a whole lot of Tarantino like you know, hands on that one anymore. This is the movie that I would say to check out. Like true romance is the movie to see of like early days, Tarantino and Tarantino ideas.
1: Definitely. And just the fact that they had to split this, just like they split reservoir dogs and Pulp Fiction is so cool because that's such a classic Tarantino thing. Just the level of creativity that he has to pull all of these, like he created a universe and there's a lot of people who live in it. And there's like 10 movies that are a part of it. Oh, uh, in Reservoir Dogs, Alabama is mentioned.
0: Yes, because originally in the Tarantino revision where Alabama was going to live, if if you watch the bitter ending that I watch, she lives and is going to go on and commit her own crime. She basically pulls like a, a Kiss and Kate Barlow mm. and like <laughs> Bitter Lover crime shenanigans and so she is supposed to meet up with i i can't remember which character maybe mr white's character it was mr white yeah and then they like he references her in there because if this film had stayed true to the the vision the revised vision then there would have been that connection there although there is other connections to his other films in that so lee Donowitz, the producer, yeah, is the grandson of The Bear Jew in *Inglorious Bastards. Donowitz.
1: Oh, yeah. no way.
0: Yeah. I didn't see
1: that one, but I like as soon as you said that, I was like Donowitz. <laughs> Donnie oh, Donowitz. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, that's unreal. I love The Bear Jew.
0: I I love that Tarantino just puts in that little extra like flavor to just like add that those little connections into this universe like it's a stephen king type of move that just like it just adds like a little bit of flavor to the text that that has been adapted here yeah the tony scott convincing gary oldman to hop in and become drexel so when they met like he'd already given gary oldman the script and gary Oldman was like i have no time to read this story man mm-hmm. and he was like just give me like give me an idea of what i'd be playing here so that i can make a decision tony scott just said you're playing a white guy who thinks he's black and you're a killer pimp and, <laughs> and gary oldman was like he literally laughed and was like all right i'm in <laughs> oh man that's that's perfect <laughs> yeah like that he literally accepted on the spot i love that really kind great. of thing.
1: That's the kind of thing that, like, there's a nostalgia to just that kind of fact.
0: Yeah, those kind of, like, handshake deals kind of thing that work out, you know? That's all you had to say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brad Pitt's character, Floyd, is based on Tarantino's experiences in Hollywood living with deadbeat roommates. Yeah. I like that little taste there. This is one of my favorite things about Gary Oldman's performance, actually. Gary Oldman had his Dracula wig maker work on Drexel's wig Hmm. and then one of his eyes that he used like that blind eye is from dracula it's the same eye oh shit for whatever reason he brought his 70 year old mother to set with him every day while he was filming his drexel and then it would use her like as his advisor to like get opinions on how to perform drexel perfectly
1: that is insane (laughs) like what kind of life did she live that she is the the expert on drexel Yeah.
0: yeah it's so it's so great the other thing about how Gary Oldman found his, his Drexel was he was in New York and he heard a kid talking outside his trailer one day and was like, can you come here and read the script for me? Read this dialogue. And he was like, what do you think this dialogue? And the kid was like, ah, it's pretty good. But like, it doesn't quite fly. I wouldn't say this. I wouldn't say that. And then like, he like helped him edit his lines to make them more feel more like genuine. Oh shit.
1: And who, who was that kid? How is that kid big now? (laughs)
0: no (laughs) maybe maybe like maybe someday we'll hear the real story behind all of it but yeah no I think I think that's super cool I like this this is a small detail but the scene where the two detectives are interrogating Elliot was completely improvised that kind of harkens back to when Mike and I were doing our dog day afternoon episode and like any interrogation scene any scene where like these characters don't know what they're going to do was improvised in that movie. And so I think it's a little bit of a callback to that. And like, I I like when directors put their actors in this, these situations of like, you don't really know what the other guy's going to do. So let's play it out. Like you actually don't know what the other guy's going to do and say,
1: Oh, unreal.
0: It took five days to shoot the motel room fight. Oh wow. Between Alabama and James Gandolfini, which is wild because like, That's a a traumatic scene to like play over for five days. Mm -hmm. I'm glad they did because it worked out really well. It's like a, it's, it's such a gut wrenching scene. Yeah. But, Oh, this goes back to what I was saying about like my confliction about Clarence's character in the early part of the movie. In the first day of shooting, Tony Scott and Christian Slater, like, had kind of a disagreement over who Clarence was as a character. Tony Scott actually gave Christian Slater a copy of Taxi Driver and told him to watch it to, like, get some inspiration there. So, like, some of that unhinged is actually truly built into the character. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It feels like it is. Like, he even just the fact that at the beginning he does his whole, I'd fuck Elvis, to yeah. the first girl. <laughs> and then he you like you hear that whole story and then he's like uh, like enough about me what are you into and then you cut to the diner scene where after alabama and him have gone to the movies and they're getting pie and it cuts to him saying but enough about the king like how about you right. it's like that is something that someone who is unhinged would like find a thing that is quirky enough to find an interesting girl and um it's repeatable for
0: him. There's this obsessiveness that he has with Elvis, yeah. right? That yeah. like somebody unhinged, like uh, Robert De Niro's character and taxi driver would also share, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: The other part of this that maybe is kind of interesting is it's it's a little bit something that I think Tarantino's maybe come back to before, is that the idea of characters that feel real and realized, that feel like real people, that become capable of like this crazy violence i think it's kind of interesting that that's something that he comes back to and is explores a lot is like are real people capable of producing this violence Mm,
1: yeah if you put like a regular person who's had like a boring life and they've been beat down before but now they're like in this weird spot where they're like um i don't know maybe maybe he felt stuck for a while because he's been at that comic book store for like four years And uh, like, we don't know too much about Alabama before her four days as a call girl. But like, she obviously had to run away to Detroit of all places. So yeah, if you put one of those types, like someone who's been beaten down before, but now they're like, in this weird place where they're like, what's next? And they've been dreaming about all this kind of stuff. You can push someone like that to that more than like regular person.
0: I'd almost relate this back to Network, which is a movie I did on the podcast as well for the draft episode mm. that you haven't seen yet, but you need to, we're going to do it on the podcast at some point within the next two years, I would say, because I really, really loved that movie. Yeah. But there's like a scene where there's two characters of two different generations having an argument and the one character who's older, and this is, you know, like the seventies or so, I can't remember exactly when it came out, maybe the eighties. But the one character who's older at this point, he's in his 60s, you know, he, he lived through World War II and stuff. And then the younger character, he's kind of explaining to her, he's like, you know, you grew up in, like, the television era, mm-hmm. like, and the movie era. And, like, you know, your life, the way that you see the world has been shaped by cinema. Yeah. And yeah. it's, like, exactly how Clarence sees the world is through cinema.
1: And that's how Tarantino feels. At, exactly. Like, has lived his life. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. That's, so, that's a very good connection there. Yeah. When Clarence is out getting the burgers and Alabama's getting beat up, there's just like such a juxtaposition between like the extreme violence and then him just getting a burger. And like, he's like so nice and like chatting up. And he's like, hey, what's your biggest burger? And then like, you get cut back to her like stabbing the guy in the foot. And, like, it was just, like, an awesome use of, yeah, juxtaposition of the two characters. That Like, he's in such a normal state, and then she is in extreme violence. Love that. I wrote that down.
0: Just even, like, how the tension is built in that mm-hmm. scene as well, right? Like, I, I feel like since then, that kind of tension building, where one character's in extreme emotional de- Distress and another character just kind of like goofing around, kind of thing. I feel like that gets used and has become a trope since this movie, and it, it was probably used prior to that. But like, yeah. I don't know if there, I have a film from earlier than this one that I would, I would reference as like a good comparison.
1: Yeah, you know, it's tough because there's so many old movies that we haven't seen yet, and that's still why we're doing this. Like, this was such a good one. I can't wait to find like those old ones that were like, oh shit, true, true romance.
0: <laughs> yeah, true, true. All right, I, I, there's a few other effects in filming, but for the sake of this podcast not being like four hours, let's move on to mm. some more exciting stuff. I really want to talk about the score of this one because I loved the score of this movie. It's scored by Hans Zimmer himself, you know, frequent collaborator with Chris Nolan. He did the last um, Jordan Peele movie. Nope, like very, very famous movie composer that a name that is a household name at this point, I think yeah. one of the very few composers who is a household name. Hundred percent. I believe he composed Dune as well, but you might have to fact check me on that one, but the song you're so cool. The opener that gets used throughout this film, it, you know, it's a catchy xylophone piece in and of itself, but like I love the xylophone use of it in this movie because it builds this sense of adventure in the film mm. and that's truly at its at its absolute heart this film is an adventure you know even when things get dark that song is used to kind of pull us back into the adventure that we're on with these characters the opener with the the score being used and then Alabama's voiceover is actually a direct homage to the 1973 film Badlands which is an exploitation film that we will absolutely do on this podcast at some point I've already written down and start it because I think it sounds incredible. <laughs> I also love like the use of contemporary rock music in this film like like we already talked about how Outshined by Soundgarden got used yeah. with Brad Pitt like perfect use of that but like what I love about the use of the song choices in this movie is that they're all like really famous songs that you've probably heard here and there at some point. But they're not like the standard songs that get used in every movie, right and like
1: I felt like it didn't set itself up to be to feel too old like it yeah if it was if this movie was made like four years earlier, there would be a bunch of synths and it would be like thief and it'd be like all the uh like the eighties synth vibe, but right this it's like they were trying to find like what's not gonna make us stuck like that.
0: Yeah, it's not the eighties synth. It's not, you know, hearing paint it black or something like that for the millionth time. Like mm. we're not Tony Scott and Hans Zimmer aren't basically recreating Martin Scorsese's whole shtick, right? Like yeah. they're using these songs that are all like songs that I know that are in the culture that culturally make sense that are popular songs that would, you know, fit fit the ideas of this film being like a cult culture, like greatest mm. hits. And they're all used really perfectly. Like I got to shout out the use of the Hey Baby, like when he's talking on the phone and it like, yeah. they synced it up for him to be like, Hey Baby. And then yeah. the song Chantilly Lace by the big bopper starts playing in that moment. I thought it was an Elvis song, but it's not. I did too at
1: that, at that point. Huh?
0: But it, it's edited into that phone booth scene extraordinarily well. It makes that scene even more memorable than it already is because of its use there. I mentioned out shine, but I just one last time. I think this is my favorite use of Chris Cornell's voice. My favorite singer, I think, or one of my favorite singers of all time used perfectly in this film. I don't think there's a better use of his voice in that film ever. So I love the score to this movie.
1: Yeah. Uh, They used white wedding during um, uh, their wedding, which was pretty awesome. Like that's one of the best times I've seen that. used.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Sequels, prequels, and reboots. So we've already talked about the connection to the Tarantino universe, but where this originally was also like took snippets from outside of their script that they wrote was Tarantino's amateur first film, my best friend's birthday, Hmm. which you can actually watch online like 30 minutes of it's actually the basically the first act of this movie. And they use a lot of like dialogue from that It's really amateurish. Like, it literally is like a film school type of film. And the other thing, too, is like there was a fire in the studio where they were editing it. So half of it got destroyed. Yeah, destroyed. And so, like, it's not even a finished film. It's really bizarre. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. But otherwise, like there's no there's no direct sequels or anything. But, you know, it's connections to the Tarantino universe. Um, and then it's just it references like 50 TV shows and movies from like the 70s, 80s, all the way back to like the like 30s kind of thing. Like this is just a love letter to cinema.
1: Yeah. Like bullet. Yeah. I was trying to keep track of them, but my notes are messy.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So the legacy of this movie, we've talked about this as well. And like, you know, Tony Soprano, G- James Gandolfini and like, you know, Gary Oldman after this Tarantino's career and how this kick started his career. It's weird because Reservoir Dogs is really what kicks off Tarantino's career. But like, this is what he sold to be able to help fund Reservoir Dogs to kick off his career. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's a chicken and egg situation, I guess. But the, oh, the other thing was I, I love Christian Slater's, glasses in this movie like the elvis kind of style glasses yeah that's the other connection to this is uma therma wears them in kill bill volume One. Oh no way yeah after she kills buck
1: oh that's awesome i'm surprised there were no well i know it's not a full tarantino but like no red apple cigarettes it was Chesterfields.
0: yeah this is the other thing that comes out of this movie is i don't know if you're going to believe this or not but uh judd apatow this movie was the primary inspiration for the film Pineapple Express. Huh. So his his idea was like, what if we got to see Brad Pitt's character leave his apartment? <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Personal reviews and the partner factor. So I love this movie. Yeah. It's a movie that's very rewatchable. Every scene is just like so ridiculous and awesome. There's so many great character appearances, actor appearances. It This is a movie that... This is my second time around and I liked it more than I think I liked it the first time around. Like when, this is a movie. When did you watch it first? I watched this last year for the first time. Okay, so this is cool. my second watch. Before I watched it this time around, before I, you know, was fully ready to go with my opinion on this, like I I was going to start writing like, you know, this is a good movie that you know, it's never going to be in my top 100, but like it's something that I really enjoy and I'll come back to, but like it's a movie that I think I'm going to keep returning to on a semi-regular basis. And I think it's a movie that's going to start really moving up in, in those rankings. Cause like, I, I do really love this movie. Mm. Everything, it just works out so well. Like it's probably, you know, it's not the top three Tarantino best scripts, but it's not necessarily out of the top five. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I I think this this is one that I'm going to come back to and I'm really going to enjoy. What about you?
1: I haven't had time to think too much about where I'd rank it, really, but, like, there's – it's really high. It's very good.
0: Will you come back and rewatch this one?
1: I will. I will, for sure. And, like, this is one that I want to show people. Like, next time I'm, like, around someone and they're like, oh, I like Tarantino movies, I'm going to be like, oh you have to watch True Romance because it's like the thing that blah, blah, blah. I'm going to go into a whole two-hour session like we just did. Yeah, Yeah, just like this. I just got to send them the primer and not get too excited. (laughs) Yeah, like I'm excited to show this to like uh, my nephew or my kids or my brother or something like that in the future. Like I want to show this to people. So that means it's
0: very high on my list. Like that's... Yeah, this is one of those movies that you kind of like you put it in your back pocket and you just keep it there, you know? And you just, you let it like, you know, stay warm in the back pocket (laughs) and, and you let it, and you bring it out to share with people.
1: Yeah. Like, next time my plans are canceled, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, true romance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, this is, no, this is a classic. Like, it's, it's one of those special movies where, and obviously at this point, like, it's got such a cult following and, like, because Tarantino's name's attached to it, it has, like, a little bit of that credibility to it, but if it wasn't connected to somebody whose name is as big as Tarantino's, like, this would feel even more like one of those diamonds in the rough kind of situation yeah. where you just, like... You probably missed this when it came out, but like you need to see it now. Oh yeah. You need to see it immediately kind of thing. Yeah. Because it's great. Once you've run through
1: all of Tarantino's, go back to this or just put it in there anyways right now.
0: Just go watch yeah. it. Yeah, you could it's probably honestly shoe this in like yeah. I like I could I could watch this after Pulp Fiction and be just as satisfied. Yeah. I might even
1: watch them in the release date, like uh, Reservoir Dogs, then this, then Pulp Fiction.
0: Ooh, ooh, I like I like where your head's at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what about Annabelle? What did she think?
1: Uh, She watched the majority of it, and uh, she really enjoyed it, I think. Well, she watched the second half, so I had to like, catch her up to speed a little bit. But she got right. into it, which is kind of rare for old movies, because usually she's like, oh, it's another old movie and uh, right. <laughs> but like this one like the pacing of everything was like on point for her yeah yep she liked it
0: awesome yeah i jess is like medium on it she's like yeah it's a good movie but like didn't really elaborate on that like she she gets hung up on like whether or not some of that stuff is maybe too racist and, and that sort of thing but ah, like, yeah. like it's overall like we both enjoy it. We both watched it together kind of thing so yeah both slap a big old recommend on it for sure oh yeah same here And speaking of recommended movies and stuff to be excited for, I think one of the biggest episodes that you and I have been talking about for, like, literally two years is coming up Mm -hmm. in two weeks. We're doing Lawrence of Arabia, which is, like, you know, one of the cornerstones of film history. Yeah. It's an epic. Like, it's, like, almost four hours. So, basically, like, you know, the movie's length of 2023's movies – I literally cannot wait because when you and I did Ben-Hur, like that was one Mm -hmm. of the highlights of 2022 for me. Like it was so good.
1: Yeah. I love that movie and I want to watch more like it. Like we've been all over the place, but I like kind of always want to go back to that style of movie every once in a while. Like that's, that's the old movie that I love especially because I, like, I have no experience in it growing up. Things like that might have been on, but you would like flip past it to watch cartoons when we were young. But like now it's like, oh, this is where it all started.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got that coming up next. Really excited about it. So stay tuned because it's going to be a next couple months. It's going to be really fun. Also Roadhouse. Also <laughs> Roadhouse. Yeah, that's a little ways away. You've already watched it because of... miscommunications here but that's okay you can either watch it again or do what you want um it's worth probably watching it again because it's so ridiculous and fun it is
1: it is i watched that last uh, two nights ago and then uh true romance last night and it was like oh this was a great weekend (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah i believe it was Cool, cool 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 all right well that's it for this week so stay tuned for lawrence arabia really excited for that episode Yeah, see you next time. Tell your dad.
1: Tell your grandpa.